glitches this morning out of our control. Uh, Cicero, the, uh, the great Roman playwright, author, famously remarked that if you change the names in a story, the story is yours, which is to say one of the great threads throughout all of human literature is this recurring, resounding idea that as much as the outside of the story may change, the clothes, the language, the location, fundamentally, the story is a story of all of our lives, stories of love gained and love lost, of, of wealth achieved and then wealth squandered, of bicker and rancor and division, of love and happiness and reunion. These are the constant themes that thread themselves over and over again. What was it that Tolstoy said? Tolstoy said that all of human literature is essentially two stories. The story of someone leaving their home and going away, or the story of a stranger coming into a town. This morning's Torah reading, I'll ask you, as we discuss it, to change the name. Instead of the name of the person I'm talking about, I want you to put your name in it, because as a cautionary tale, the story is very much ours. <clears throat> the story this morning is the penultimate story of Yosef, of Joseph. Joseph, the one who is hated by his brothers, sold off into slavery, achieves some notoriety and some position. It's cut down again as an accusation of sexual assault against his owner's wife, finds himself in jail, and now he's on the cusp of his ultimate redemption. The Pharaoh, we are told in the opening story of the Torah portion. We don't know if it's over a series of nights or if it's all one night. But Pharaoh has two dreams. The dream on one hand, the first one, is of seven cows that are, as we, my grandmother would say, gedempta. They're healthy, fat. On one side of the Nile, the other side of the Nile, there are sickly, thin cows. The sickly, thin cows then eat the healthy cows, but they look no better for having eaten them. In the second series of the dreams, it is of sheaths of wheat. One is healthy, and the other one is beaten down and dry. And the beaten down and dry ones consume the healthy ones, but they remain looking unhealthy and dry and beaten down. In Pharaoh, it says, Vatipa em rucho, the Torah tells us, which is a word, an expression that we've all experienced when we have a bad dream. Vatipa em rucho, his spirit is literally shaken. You know when you wake up sometimes from a bad dream and you ask yourself, the brief moment, you say, was that a dream? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> and he has that moment. And he's shooken for the rest of the time. And then he calls upon what's called the chatumim, right? His advisors, his spiritual advisors to come forward. And it says, ve'in paterlo. None of them were able to solve his dream. Now, it doesn't tell us in the Torah text exactly what those advisors were saying to him. But obviously, they were giving suggestions of ideas to interpret the dreams, but none of those interpretations were in any way calming or solving the spirit of the Pharaoh. It's interesting to note at this time, most of modern psychoanalysis, well, they all have theories about dreams. Not surprisingly, religious traditions all have theories about dreams. In the early religious tradition, it was always perceived that a dream was a, a scent of prophecy. Freud believed that dreams were 
an expression of the ideas and feelings of things that we felt were too dangerous during our conscious hours. In Freud's perception, it was usually sexual, but that was Freud. Jung had a slightly different tact. Jung believed that dreams were representative of things that we deeply desired, but they were held within us, and we didn't understand them ourselves. And then most, there's all other theories about in psychoanalysis, about dreams. Some of them say most approaches in psychoanalysis today actually ask the patient to interpret their own dream. It's a very different approach to that. But the ancient rabbis in the Midrash, it tells us what those advisors of Pharaoh told Pharaoh. They said the cows on both sides of the river, the seven ones, they were daughters that you were going to give birth to. They were going to be seven beautiful, healthy, vibrant daughters. And then they were going to die. And none of these interpretations calmed or gave Pharaoh the sense that the question had been answered. The question being, what are these dreams asking of him? What problem are they presenting to him? And then Joseph comes. Joseph already has a means of, of fame and fortune, relatively speaking, in prison because of his ability to solve dreams. And, jo and Joseph immediately turns to the Pharaoh and says, you're not dreaming two dreams, by the way. Because all of the interpreters tried to say it was daughters and then it was something else. They all broke the dreams down into a series of different ideas. Joseph says, no, this is all wrong, in fact. Joseph says, in fact, that this is the same dream. It's telling you the same message over and over again. And what's the message? We know famously so. You're going to have seven good years. You're going to have seven bad years. You better prepare yourself during the seven good years for the seven bad years. You could at this point certainly cast yourself off to go into an interpretation of Joseph as an economic, a Warren Buffett of his time, an economic genius, that not only was it able to see a problem, but that Joseph at some level was able to prescribe a solution to the problem. You listen to the financial news, and there are many people who try to be a Joseph. They're always telling, talking about a potential problem that will come. But Joseph not only diagnosed the problem, Joseph was able to actually provide a solution to the problem. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. What we're going to talk about today is, is why Joseph's interpretation, why in fact Pharaoh immediately knew that it was the right one. Because what does Pharaoh do as soon as Joseph tells him what the problem of the dream is? What is Pharaoh's reaction to it? Snap like that. He turns to Joseph and he gives him a degree of autonomy and authority over the empire of Egypt that nobody had imagined Pharaoh would give someone to do. He makes him basically second in command of the entire country. He gives him an Egyptian name, formally concretizing his position in Egyptian society that no longer is Joseph considered to be an outsider. But now he has an Egyptian name given by the Pharaoh himself. Tzafnach Paneach, we are told, is his name in the Torah, which means the one who solves riddles. That's Joseph's name. And he's put in charge of all of it seems to me the brilliance of Joseph's interpretation 
is a brilliance that most of us lack in our lives. We struggle for it over and over again, but we lack it in our lives. All of the other interpreters of the dreams came to Pharaoh and they're trying to say that this is a dream speaking to Pharaoh. Your daughters, your family, your money, that someone from your family is going to try to come kill you, make a coup d'etat and take over. There will be a rebellion, a revolt. That Pharaoh was always the center of the story. It was always about him. And Joseph comes along and says to him, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about everyone else. It's about Egypt. And that rocked Pharaoh's world. How many times are we told in our lives, you don't have to count by the way, but I'm sure it's often, <laughs> because I know it's often with me. How many times in our life do people close to us say to us, it's not about you? Fundamentally, one of the greatest problems we have in our life is our ability to move beyond ourselves. The ability to look after ourselves is one of our great enduring abilities because on a physiological level, there is nobody who can look after you except for yourself. If you're thirsty, nobody can drink water for you. If you have a headache, someone can't take aspirin for you. If you're hungry, no one can eat for you. On a physiological, elemental level, our ability for us to take care of ourselves is unparalleled and it's absolutely necessary because if we don't look after our own physical needs, nobody else can and you will surely die. But the thing that enables and ensures our physical survival is the absolute death knell of our emotional world. The consumption and obsession over ourselves, the inability to move outside of ourselves, to consider and think of other people? Copernicus, when he said that the earth wasn't the center of the universe, wasn't just talking about the physical universe. A Copernican worldview shattered the sense that we're the center of the world. And it's something that we have to go through in our own lives, that as we mature and gain wisdom, the hope that we no longer see ourselves as the center of the world. I'm gonna give you three ideas in Judaism that look to teach us about how we move beyond ourselves. And then I'm gonna conclude with an idea from the Haftorah this morning. Normally I never include the Haftorah, but the inclusion of the Haftorah in connection with this morning's Torah's, Torah's portion is an unmistakable nod to the point that I'm making. So bear with me. The three great actions in Jewish life that are meant to draw us out of ourselves, number one, Charity. The dollar in my pocket is not only mine. It's a tool that I use that should help other people. That I shouldn't, you look at my wealth, the money I make is something that is meant to protect or make my life better. But I am here in order to ensure that other people can live better. Idea number two, prayer and dominion. That Jews ideally do not pray alone. That we are a part of something else. It's the reason why we build synagogues. It's the reason why we gather collectively in prayer. That we don't go to Trappist monasteries hanging on in a mountain and pray by ourselves. But we pray in large, loud, noisy congregational places because our existence in this world is tied to each other. And third, prayer itself. 
I would challenge you to look at the Jewish prayer book at the Sidor. And if you can find for me more than a half dozen, more than a half dozen instances in our traditional prayer book where a person goes and asks for something that they need, look, you, I challenge you, over and over again you find in the prayers, not prayers that are directed to the needs of the individual, they are prayers that are directed to the idea of the individual, which is to say that the point of prayer is not to change God or change the world I live in to get the things that I need. The point of prayer is to pray, change the person who is praying to make them better, deeper, more aware, more connected. The union of Torah reading and Haftorah reading, I'm not going to go into the history today, it dates back to about 2,200 years ago, roughly around the time of Hanukkah, interesting, where the idea of the Haftorah was interested, according to some interpretations, long before the Torah reading was instituted as a regular thing to do, it was the Haftorahs that were read, that were read on a regular basis on Shabbat. Eventually, the two of them were fused together, and the rabbis... The ancient rabbis looked for a Haftorah whose message matched the message of the Torah portion for that morning. So one of the things you can do when you go to shul in the morning, as the Torah reading is being read and the Haftorah is being read, ask yourself, what is the connection from the Haftorah to the Torah? Why did the rabbis choose that Haftorah for this Torah portion? Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not. This morning, it's very obvious. What was the Haftorah? It was the story of Shlomo HaMelech, of King Solomon. The famous story where two women come to him. <clears throat> they have a complaint. One has a dead baby. <clears throat> Excuse me. One has a dead baby. The other has a living baby. The mother, one mother accuses the other of stealing her live baby <clears throat> in the middle of the night and swapping it for the baby that died. How does Solomon solve the problem? calls upon one of his adjutants to bring a sword. And then he says, bring the baby. And he turns to the two women and says, you don't have to fight anymore because we're going to cut the baby in half. We'll give each of you a half and it'll be solved. One woman, one woman turns around and says, if none of us can have it, if neither of us can have it, then none of us should have it. The other mother said, don't kill the baby, give it to her. And Solomon said, that's the mother. The ability to look beyond ourselves is an indication of not only who the mother was, it's an idea of what makes us better people. Shabbat Shalom.